Hello, relatives. Welcome to our sexy, sacred episode of All My Relations, where we get to talk about my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Let's talk about sex, baby. Come on. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things. <laughs> I don't know the rest. I don't either. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Dr. Desi. And today we're going to continue our conversation with the phenomenal Geraldine King, an Anishinaabe scholar who studies the ethics of intimacy, ecoerotics, and all things love and sex. Mm -hmm. Deanna Diaz is also joining us, this dope comedian who we'll tell you a little more about later. Our last episode, we spoke with Geraldine about all our loving relations. We got really deep into the way that love was disrupted by colonization, but we didn't really bring that over into the love and sex part. So today we're going to be talking about snagging, teepee creeping, <laughs> all of it. We've wanted to do this episode for a long time mm -hmm. because such is such a fundamental aspect of who we are as human mm -hmm. beings, as animals. It's central to our relationships. And I feel like 90% of the conversations that Matika and I have are like about sex, you know, <laughs> We talk about this all the time. But, you know, because of Christianity and other colonizing forces, all of the isms, mm -hmm. right, we don't talk about sex like we should. And there's so much shame that surrounds our conversations about sex. But as Geraldine reminds us, you know, we've always been sexual beings and sex can be beautiful and healthy and natural. Mm -hmm. And sex can be real sacred. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know if I've had that kind. <laughs> I'm trying to get that real sacred sex. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's time for us to overcome this colonized way of thinking that makes us feel like sex should be taboo. Of course, we too, us indigenous people, are part of the sex positivity movement. And it's good for us. Talking about sex brings so much laughter. It's good medicine. It's healing. Absolutely. And making jokes is an integral part about healthy conversations about sex. Mm -hmm. And like we'll get into later, you know, we have strong memories of our aunties, our uncles, our other kin, even grandmas and grandpas, right? <laughs> Using humor to talk about sex, teasing left, right and center. Mm -hmm. And often those types of jokes were sexual and it's meant to stir conversation, right? There's lessons in the humor. Mm -hmm. In doing so, those conversations help to normalize normalize um, what Christianity has deemed so inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned in, folks. We hope you'll enjoy this hilarious, necessary, and powerful conversation just as much as we did. Sorry. <laughs> The data tell us that American Indians and Alaska Natives, we have the highest rates of exogamy. So exogamy is this, you know, outmarrying. We have these highest rates of marrying people who are not Indians. And we also know that the data tell us that we're marrying white people. It has this historical narrative, right, of the Indian maiden marrying her white, handsome lover, you know, has that become internalized in how we think about love and who's a good partner? But we also know that Native babies are being born to couples who aren't married either. So like we have much, much higher rates of Native American babies being born to moms who have never been married compared to the rest of America as well. So it's like we're thinking through how I think 
the historical experiences of generations past, I think, continue to influence who we think are good partners, who we think will be good fathers, who we think will be good providers. But I guess I'd be interested in thinking through how some of these historical narratives might be embodied today and how that might influence who we think is a good love match or a good love partner. Or who's, yeah, who's good lovers. So perhaps this idea that, and it's probably psychosomatic, right? Where they feel that maybe that marrying um, is that entry into whiteness that has been so denied for so long, right? Mm -hmm. Because whiteness and white privilege and ownership of land and, and wealth and all of these things that we've been denied for so long could possibly be accessible through this gateway of marrying into or becoming coupled with somebody that holds that unearned privilege, right? It had to do with sort of the nuclear cis-heteronormative ideas of who's raising children. So it was presumed that if a white woman married an Indian man and they had kids, that the white woman as the woman would be teaching culture and language and be at home with them, doing the schooling, doing this and doing that, that would ultimately um, pass her white traditions on to the children and they would ultimately become enfranchised and lose their assimilated, right? Because then the woman, the Indian woman couldn't live on the reserve anymore if she got enfranchised, that then all of a sudden she'd be a part of the broader society and then the children would become assimilated that way. So it was a really mm. like pervasive way of, I guess, negotiating who was marrying who. And, and in Canadian case, that might be something that endures, right? The idea, the notion that either being raised in the white society, interacting with white society, being forced into the white society would result in that taking up of white society that would ultimately be more beneficial. Maybe it's happening subconsciously too. You know, like I think about relatives that I know that have married white people. Do they consciously know? Do they think to themselves like, oh, I want to get close to whiteness? No, it's, this is how we talk about it in, in philosophically and when we when we review academically. But when people are falling in love and swiping on Tinder, is that they like, oh, yeah, I want that white woman because that white woman's going to help me get power. No, but we are deeply impacted by dominant society and measurements of success in white society are related to being a part of this like industrial like capitalist system and being productive and therefore we're attracted to people that appear more more successful i'm doing air quotes successful in the white man's world versus a person that's traditional and so in in like on the res you know that's like a hunter or something but maybe lives in like a hut house you know <laughs> like, i don't know <laughs> i'm just sort of like thinking out loud here but i just want to say like like this conversation um is not necessarily like at the forefront of our mind when we're when we're dating necessarily, or is it really? I think it also, like when I was hearing you talking, Matika, I also want to bring this back to this notion of love and how we show love and how we value different types of, of love and how love is displayed. Or, you know, like I remember thinking, you know, well, if he buys me something, is that a display of love that I should value more than say somebody who's gone and caught a bunch of fish and brought it to my family? Or, you know, the, this perspective partner uh, has all this education and makes all this money and, oh, you know, am I going to consider him perhaps a better life partner than somebody, you know, a res boy who's grounded in community, who knows our ways and our language, but who doesn't make money in this white man's world? Like, I think how we think about love as Indigenous people obviously is is very much tempered by white society but it also has me thinking about like 
I think a lot of it is overt. We think about subconscious, but we also think about like how there are very real ways in which love has become manifested in our society through like material objects and possessions that weren't a part of indigenous ways of doing and being and knowing and relating. Right. But compulsory Mm. monogamy expects you to stay with that person because it assures the security, first of all, of industrial complex, right? Because it's secure, you're in this relationship that doesn't have uh, fragility to it. And then that Mm -hmm. industrial complex can continue to rely upon your labor and, and, you know, you being in this union, you're reproducing, literally, right? Like the reproduction of workers, really, like this is what it all sort of relies on. Whereas if you're uh, entering into multiple relationships, there's that lack of uh, continuity, right? There's a lack of of security for that complex that relies upon mm. someone to work till their death type of thing, right? Mm. Well, um, you know what? I think we should switch gears, you know, because because you teach a course, Decolonizing Gender, Sex, and Sexuality. First, like, what are the main tenets of that class? Maybe can you take us through the framework? And, and really, I'm interested in, like, how it impacts people's lives or the feedback you've heard around this topic and why this topic. Right. So, you know, there's a matrix when we come to talk about sex, gender and sexuality. And that's how I sort of preface the course, making sure that we understand off off the hop. These are different. These are fluid. This is cosmological. Like it's not just a binary, first of all, but to really understand what it means by sex, gender and sexuality, sexualities, actually. And so we, we, you know, we preface the course with that. We get into patriarchy and colonialism. And in my teaching practice, I, I sort of refuse to, to put our pain and suffering on, on display all the time. Like, I just like yes. to start by saying, I'll talk to you about settler colonialism so you know that it endures and it's around you. But I'm not here for this constant, like, trauma porn this is not a part of how I want you to envision those bodies because then that, that's how it keeps perpetuating that idea of that Pocahontas perplex, right? Of this forever scarred, scarable, killable body because all we experience is trauma. So how can love mm. and joy resonate in a body that's only performing or talking about trauma? So we talk a little bit about that, but then I really like to focus on these radical re-envisionings and what people are doing, centering on Indigenous feminisms in particular. We, we jump off from there. Uh, we talk about critical polyamories. Your uh, episode of Kim Tall Bears is actually on the uh, syllabus. So, and I ask people, yeah, I ask my students to reflect on that uh, as a part of the assignments. And I've heard so much just excellent feedback from that, like understanding the power of critical polyamory in this decolonizing sex genders and sexualities and how it's uh, this framework of um, freedom really and and liberation Mm. right that is tied to sex that is tied to gender but ultimately empowers bodies it readies our bodies for those acts of resistance for those rising up right so if we're just constantly negotiating trauma and pain you know we're in a state that's limited to what power we can bring to those um, circles so talking mm-hmm. about how something like, you know, if you, I had asked a student, how do you think having many lovers would like 
prepare you for battle and it's at first it's just sort of um yeah you got more people behind you <laughs> like you got more people to call up to like come down to the front lines and it's like no listen to this podcast and then tell me like how you think that you know something Geraldine in your research did you ever find anything about masturbation I know like when we're talking about sex let's also kind of like acknowledge that we're not only talking about like about sex you know which is what Geraldine is talking about Desi I don't know if you've heard the episode with Dr. Talbear so she you know she's talking about like these non-human relations and you know the way that we interact with all of our other relations at the same time, not just thinking about it in terms of sex. But since your class is called Decolonizing Gender, Sex and Sexuality, you know, I haven't ever found any research about how our people thought about masturbation (laughs) or self-pleasure, so to speak. You know, I only can think about it from, you know, this very Western way that we've been impacted by Catholicism and the stories that I've heard around it now. But pre-contact I don't know I haven't found anything and so I wonder have you what how do people think about that talk about that in your research so there's two things so so the first the first uh, part of research that I'm familiar with again is in Melissa K Nelson's work getting dirty and she's <laughs> she she analyzes these stories these Anishinaabek oral histories like the the woman who married a beaver and um the woman who married uh, a bear and you know all of these these ideas of how Anishinaabek oral histories tell us to be in relation in an eco-erotic sense with with what's around us but she also talks about uh, she relates a story called the woman who married a stick so it's going through this whole sort of you know narrative and at the end she's like I'm paraphrasing but what strikes me she said I wonder if this is the first story of a dildo <laughs> Like, if this is the first, like, <laughs> Nishnabek story of a woman who marries a stick, right? And if we start to have these stories resonate in ideas like self-pleasure, right, instead of reading it as, like, literally that she's married the stick and, oh, it's just fake, it's just a myth, it's just, you know, it's supposed to tell us something else. And it's like, well, no, maybe what it's supposed to tell us is that Nishnabek women did practice self-pleasure with items that they found in the environment around them, right? Because what else could a stick come to represent? It also tells us within that story itself, if she's marrying a stick, that she didn't necessarily have to marry a man in this. And all of those stories, if they're marrying other aspects of our cosmology, then that completely severs the idea that they're not marrying a man that and, and thus would need that man for their pleasure, for their sexual gratifications, for reproductive capacities, for uh, lifelong companionship, for love. So I do think that there may not be um, research in terms of it having been, um, you know, turned into an article that analyzes all of these. But I think if we do look back and, and Melissa K. Nelson's pointing to this, right, that there are these stories that are representative and suggest that our people were thinking mm. through these ways of pleasure, of lifelong love, of self-pleasure perhaps. And it really draws me to, and and I always assign this uh, article, no matter what class I'm in, even if it doesn't have to do with sex, gender, and sexuality, but uh, Quill Christie Peters Quay becomes the moon, touches herself so she could feel whole again. And it's in uh, Mm -hmm. Guts Magazine. And it is the most powerful, beautiful, like it just gives me shivers just talking about it. And she's relating to 
being somebody whose lands have been taken away, this settler colonial project that requires this occupation of the lands in order to keep enacting violence, particularly against Indigenous women. And she asks, you know, what does it mean for me to go to the shores of Gichigamic uh, Lake Superior and touch myself? Is this an ultimate gift or interaction or releasing my ancestors of this pain that's been associated with the ways that sexual violence is intricately tied to the occupation of our lands. So she just has this beautiful narrative and it's attached to Mm. a painting. You see um, our spiritual ancestors, you see all of these traditional elements and you see her body splayed into the landscape. The narrative really centers on encouraging folks to think about how self-pleasure is an actual act of resistance against the settler colonial regime that relies upon us to limit our bodies, to think shamefully in our bodies, to hate our bodies in all their forms, right? It, oh, it's so beautiful. I encourage you to to read it. It is just, I, I, I put it in every class and people are just constantly blown away by this young Nishnabek, um woman who's encouraging us to go out on the land and masturbate, right? <laughs> wow. But having it be this act of of resistance and she opens it with talking about the shores lapping against the shoreline and oh it's just so beautiful i'm gonna read it i can't help but think about that and how that's contrasted to the way that i imagine you know like modern erotic culture and that sounds very different than than what you're describing in this article here yeah 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 and i think that that's the power of the indigenous erotics right now is that this sensibility is on our own terms it's describing our bodies on our own terms it's sometimes in ways that whiteness can't seep into so my own writing um it's referred to as like cooking porn because <laughs> grandmas are, <laughs> grandmas are having sex right like it's a, a lot of my uh, writing is about humor these humorous mm. interactions you know i tell a story of uh you know, she went down, a granny went down to Bingo Hall and, and the guy asks her afterwards uh, if they can go back to her place. And she says, you know, um, my grandkids might show up. They they often come over. And then he's like, oh, yeah, no, no, no problem. He's like, she, And then she says, well, it's just because there's only a blanket on the doorway. Anyways, it all like goes, there's this narrative, right? And, uh, and, uh, what did, and then, you know, just something to the effect of, well, I got to get my door out of the dryer. Like, I'm just talking, right? But then, um, and then she goes, well, I guess he was, he was uh, real into me because he just asking me how I make my bannock and, and I'm just going on, right? Like, there's this story. But in the end, the, the punchline is she goes, yeah, we we're going at it. And then all of a sudden he was done. And then he and then she goes. Now I know why they call a microwave just done real fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, I love it. I but love these it. are like things I didn't hear that exact story. But these are like things that I would have heard. These types of stories, like you name everybody's got a name on the res, right? But that's you know just something that I would have heard something like that. Why is this guy called microwave? Well, because he punches real fast. He's done real fast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know you're you're right though. You're right about how often we talk about sex and sexuality and joke about it in my communities, and it was always normal for me in my house. It was always open, and we always talked about those things when I was growing up in a funny, joking way. It was not something that we didn't talk about. So I. I can just hear my aunties thinking about that right now and how naughty they always have been. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> 
You know, and I think that that's so that's so important too, right? And it just makes me consider and reflect upon with aunties being sexy, cookums being sexy. If we think of sex as ceremony as well, then it's completely necessary that a sexy auntie is also sacred, mm. right? If we if we buy into that, sex is not just about having children, being dominated having to be in a certain relationship with certain toys or, th- or things penetrating us or not, if we think of it so beyond that, the freedom, then the first thing that comes to mind is that those same aunties who are sexy are sacred. Mm-hmm. And us too. And so then that transfers to us, right? Because like I'm like a niece in training. I'm an auntie in training. <laughs> like, so, it, so it allows, right? But if instead we say no, aunties are just got to be you know they wear ribbon skirts and they they're they're the holders of our language and they are we have to remember that that language and that culture and those teachings also contain those aspects of erotics I was just um, interviewing this man, Greg Biscacone, and he took me out to harvest wild rice when I was in Lac de Flambeau. And he was explaining to me that same thing about the language. He's a language teacher. And he said, what we ask our students is, does it have a soul? Because our language is not gendered, but it's whether is it alive, is it not alive? But what it really means is not alive or not is, is does it have a soul? Our entire framework for the way that we interact with the world is based around the respect that we give to all living things. And our language tells us how we're meant to interact. From the moment you start speaking, you're learning about relationality. It really isn't like this something that we think about like, oh, I'm in relationship with that tree. It's like my the way I describe the tree is in re- I'm already in relationship with it. And he said the English language can never fully grasp what it means to be in relationship because we are stuck in a framework that's about masculinity and femininity. And it, we can't even begin to understand this other worldview of all my relations until we begin to understand these older ways of interacting with the world. And I just mm. thought that was so beautiful. And then when he talked about Manoman and wild rice and, you know, like the prophecies around wild rice and how rice saved the people. And I was thinking about like our relationship with the tree people and how the trees are so sacred to us all throughout Turtle Island, North America. There are these these very intimate relationships with the landscape uh, that taught us and we belong to it. And so I've been thinking about how do we reestablish those relationships? in this contemporary world. I was really reflecting on how you can enter into a relationship or enact these ethics of intimacy, this Babeshwandam, Nishnabek, in a space such as a national park that has been curated so heavily to the degree to tell a story of nationalism, right? Like there's so many things, and in my research, reading about what can take place in a national park, what can't, how it's curated and manicured, to uphold this heteronormative nationalist sensibility. So thinking through all of this, and I thought, I think what I want to do is I'm going to sit down, I'm going to look at some of the plant life that exists there, 
and I'm going to write a love letter to them. And then a part of this, my exhibit will be taking people to those plants and reading this love letter. But I particularly wanted to look at plants that helped with fertility, that help with ensuring an Indigenous futurity. So uh, mm. one of the love letters I read was to Dudushabo Jibik, which are dandelions. So mm. people just to manicure their lawns and whatever, they get rid of them. They're gone. They're considered weeds. But for Anishinaabeg people, Dudushabo Jibik means Dudushabo is milk, like the milk that comes from your breast. Mm. And then Jibik is root. And because when you break it open, there's the there's that cream that that plant has. You know, so I'm reading this like story to Dudu Shabo Jibik and thinking about the ways that their body has been eviscerated, how their body is viewed through like this white lens as like being less than and I'm wondering if they feel the same way as indigenous women, the way our bodies are viewed, right? Even though we mm. have this lifeblood and they have this similar lifeblood. I've just been thinking a lot about sex and the pressures to have sex, especially after childbirth. <laughs> you know, especially you you probably there too. You just had a baby. All the articles I read about sexuality, postpartum sexuality are all written by white women. I haven't ever read about postpartum sexuality from indigenous women's perspectives. Uh, and so I wonder, have you thought about that at all or talked with folks about that? Yeah, actually, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because I was going to um, suggest to either Tennille Campbell or Andrea Landry, who, who writes for Indigenous Motherhood, to talk exactly almost about that, right? Like, but also centering it in, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. What are we saying when, we, when we're upholding this idea of um, uh, women's power being intricately tied to being a life giver? What does that mean for trans folks, right? What does that mean for women who don't want kids, uh, for people whose um, uteruses have been harmed or taken out, you know, have miscarriages? So there's only a certain type of woman then that has power in that narrative through simply that ability to proceed with life. And what does that mean in terms of that postpartum recovery period, right? About the way our bodies look, the way our bodies feel, that if we're just powerful and we give life and we just bounce back and we're, we're these uh, pillars of the community just because of that, that's also a negotiation of a woman's body, right? Laughter is the best way to talk about sex. It doesn't always work out well when you laugh during sex. (laughs) You know, it doesn't usually end well, shall we say, if you start bringing in the cackle. Even worse! (laughs) Which is why we decided to bring comedian Deanna Diaz, a.k.a. Deanna Mad, a hilarious and powerful stand-up comedian, part of the Ladies of Native Comedy. She's from the Tonawanda Seneca Nation, raised in Southern California. And here's a little snippet for you. Ending love can only be explained by a 49. So in my head, a little, a little beat started. So I'm like making my way over, kind of like doing a little inner treble. But then I noticed my steps started getting wider. My hips started swaying. And I realized the song had changed in my head. It was no longer a sweet loving 49. It had then turned into, I wanna sex you up. As you can hear, Deanna isn't afraid to have the embarrassing, funny, and taboo real talk about sex. And we need to have healthier conversations about sex in Indian country. 
So this idea, you know, all my sexual relations talking about sex, I think it's a really important conversation, but it's not something that's often talked about, right? Why is that, Des? Christianity, 500 plus years of colonization, you know, all the shame. I mean, I'm a terrible Catholic, born and raised on both sides. I went to a Catholic Indian boarding school, right? Like, I didn't know anything about shame, anything about my body being shameful until school, right? And then it was like, oh, damn. Um, but for for so many of us, we have these generations of our people, of our relatives, right, who have been taught shame through Christianity, through all of its different sects. And we're just full of this shame and embarrassment and guilt for wanting pleasure. I mean, even as 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 young people. So there's a lot that needs to be undone and unlearned in that process. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? I love blaming every, most things on Christianity. So I'm right there with you. I, you know, I was told when I first got into this to not be so like explicit, to not talk about sex too much, to not talk about my body too much, that it was probably going to be really, uh, people aren't going to like it. You know, they don't like Indian women talking about their bodies, talking about sex, whether it's positive or negative. They, that's what I was told. You know, I can only speak to my tribe and I'm Seneca. And, you know, there's just a lot more sexual agency and reproductive rights going on, you know, pre-contact. And it just that all slowly dwindled with the introduction of this new societal thinking. So the shame for me comes from the fact that we weren't like that. You know, we're always talking about decolonize your mind and you're this and you're that. And it's like, you know, are you going to decolonize your ideas around sex? Not every tribe had that. Not every tribe, you know, was as open and free <laughs> and as mine might have been. But, you know, is that shame serving us any good today? Even if you weren't from a tribe that wasn't as open, like, is that helping you at all? No, Completely absolutely not. Agree. You bring up an interesting point, Deanna, you know, this idea that uh, pre-contact, we had a totally different relationship with sex. I wonder, you know, is that the same for you, Des? Have you heard Cheyenne's stories about how we were towards sex pre-contact? I mean, for us, we would just go out and hook up in the woods. We lived communally, of course, right? So it was like, I mean, I guess you could get down in the teepee with everybody around you. But like, for the most part, there was like, you know, courting rituals that took place. And, you know, people were hooking up. It was all done in nature, too, right? So like, we are also very intimately connected to lands and waters and everything else around us as we were also having sex. So I think that to me is beautiful. And if you ever hooked up in the woods, I mean, you know, there's an extra layer to it. <laughs> you get mosquitoes bites on your ass on the way out. It's not always fun. You bring a blanket, fun. girl. You always bring a blanket. Or just spray each other down in deep before you start fucking. Yeah, it's sexy. You have to do the Indian auntie thing. You know, you have to keep a blanket in the back of your car for all purposes. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of them, apparently, extras, just in case, you know, friends might need them too, you know. Nature sex really is good too. I mean, because you just never know. The weather could change, an animal could cruise on by. I mean, you just never know. I was all I was always hooking up in nature in high school because it was like you had to go somewhere. You weren't gonna go to each other's houses where all your family and aunties and friends and grandparents and everybody was. And then you walk in, then you walk back into your house like nothing happened, you know? We were out there praying. <laughs> we were praying extra hard. 
And I remember like being in class one day, like at the tribal college and like all of us were just like, holy hell, look at all the different ways they describe penis in this Cheyenne dictionary, like big <laughs> penis, small penis, erect penis, pulled back penis, like all these mm. words. And then like we were thinking like, who wrote this dictionary? And it was like all the old uncles and aunties, you know, who made darn sure that yeah. we all knew that there were lots of words for the peen. <laughs> It was just like, they're going to want to know how to say that. This is important. (laughs) They better know how to say that. (laughs) Just imagine those elders. You know, they had the best dang time writing all that out, too. And they were probably fighting. That's not how you say that. I have more experience with that than you. So you got to get really descriptive of how we're talking about this, which I think is fantastic because it it really shows, right, how... There was no shame associated with this. We had words for this. We had lots of words for how to describe sexually relating to somebody else, right? And there's no shame in it. But yet there is now, right? So the other left out thing majorly is asexuality, because every time I try to have a conversation about asexuality and they're just like, I've never met anybody like that. And I'm like, I'm sure you have, but we have shamed people for so long, like not wanting sex was weird that like, I'm sure they just went along with the norm just so that you wouldn't say anything Mm. adverse about them. We have these norms that constrain our thinking around what is good sex, what is bad sex. I'm also thinking about how we have to be open and honest with our own sexual experiences Because that will enable us to be able to share with these younger generations and to normalize it all and to just fight back against the shame that is so pervasive. So what is the conversation you would want to have with your younger self about sex? You know, like, what are some words of wisdom, anti-advice you might give yourself? So mine would be don't confuse a great sexual connection with love or an emotional connection. Like when I talk to my younger girls, I'm like, the only reason for you to ever have sex is just because you absolutely want to. There should be no other reason. That's good than anti-advice that. right there because you want to. That is great anti-advice because you want to. But then there's also this other part that I think I really learned in my younger years is like, I also don't have to have sex with everybody I want to have sex with. <laughs> Sometimes I have a a friend that's a really good friend that I really admire, you know, and I want to stay friends with that person. And I found, you know, like sometimes like when I have sex with them, then we don't really want to be friends afterwards, you know. And so like sometimes like I can love and respect and admire somebody and not need to have them, you know. And also I can have sex with somebody and also not need to be in a committed monogamous relationship with them just because I had sex with them you know like and I always tell that to my young nieces like sex does not solidify a relationship you know like when you're especially when you're a teenager like when you're a young person you think to yourself like if I have sex with this person they're gonna love me my whole thing that I tell to my nieces and nephews is like Look, have sex if you want to, but just know that it doesn't mean that you're going to get a monogamous committed relationship. I also want to be that auntie that like kids want to come talk to, right? Like, like I'm really open about sex. I've had a lot of sex. I've had sex that, you know, on all these different, you know, continents and countries, like different partners, all sorts of all of it. I want to be honest and open with young people so that, you know, they're not afraid to come ask me things or they're not afraid to, you know. Let's talk open and honestly and how do we create those spaces, right? Because, but we have to be open and honest with ourselves first, right? And like embrace our own experiences because it enables us to have open conversation that it's okay to feel good 
Yes. That's a big thing I would tell myself that, listen, pleasure and joy from my body between me and myself and just me, that's beautiful. Between me and somebody else, that's also beautiful, right? Like, I think self-pleasure is a huge thing that I'd want to tell myself as a younger person that, that it can be beautiful and normal and healthy. It took me a long time to kind of internalize that. relatives that's all we have time for today thank you so much for tuning in and sticking with us we know we know we know it's been a while since we put out an episode and it's not because we don't want to trust me we want to be on air but things have gotten crazy over here i have been working like a wild woman turning in this project 562 book i did it it happened things are happening i'm excited uh Dr. Dr. Dez moved to Los Angeles. She's a full-time professor now at UCLA. Go Dez. Uh, Adrienne put out her new book, y'all. Please check it out. Notable Native People is the title. We're going to put a link to that in our Instagram. You can find it everywhere you buy books. Go Adrienne. Hooray. And also... One of our main team members, Teo, had a little baby. (laughs) And he's been in baby land uh, doing the full-time daddy thing. And we're so happy and proud to have a new member of the family. And so we just wanted to say, you know, we're sorry we have been off air for a while, but we didn't do it because we don't love you. We did it because, (laughs) you know, life happened. But we're back now and we're really excited to be sharing new content with you. So thanks for sticking with us. Take care of relatives. Take care of one another out there. Aho. Oh.